Hey, it's Chris Creston, producer of The Kelly Cotrera Show. Greg Brady filled in for Kelly today. Here's what's coming up on the podcast. Greg chatted with Aaron Rupar from Vox, and they broke down the Biden-Harris ticket. Greg also was able to catch up with a teacher on their way down to the Queen's Park protest. And first, Greg chatted with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty to get the lay of the land with the latest COVID numbers here in Ontario. Yesterday, a great day. In Ontario, if you're looking at the COVID-19 numbers, 33, and to just, you know, jar you, the last time they were that low was the day that Ontario declared a state of emergency back in mid-March when we realized, hey, kids aren't going to be in school for a while. I can't go to the keg on a Saturday night for a while. No sports, no concerts, none of that. And we were still very much learning about the virus. We weren't having conversations yet about masks or any of the like. I'm very pleased to welcome in uh, infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners. He is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. Uh, Dr. Suman, I greatly appreciate you coming on. And, and you're a massive Rafa Nadal fan, so we could have a conversation about that, as I'm noting from your... Uh, your I see, I'm a Djokovic guy, but believe me, this an, the anti-vax stuff, I gotta... I need a new guy, doctor. I gotta... <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I love Novak, and I don't know what to do now. I'm I'm so torn. I'm torn in two. It, it's been it's been tearing me apart watching him beat the Nadal over the last several years. So it's tough. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if we're ever going to see Roger play again. But there he's there's Nadal sitting uh, and and uh, 19 slams right one behind Federer. And I was so wrong about him. I'm like, there's I've watched tennis my whole life. There's a clay court guy. He's not going to be able to win on hard court. He's a clay court guy. He's Gustavo Querton, and 19 Grand Slams later, I'm an idiot. So yeah, there you go. I, we were all thinking the same thing, so I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, like, the numbers are encouraging yesterday, but I often, I've often used this analogy, and it's a rather, I think it's a primitive and basic one, especially for someone that doesn't have a medical degree. It's like doing all the right things, losing 20 pounds, you're eating right, you're exercising right, you're living right, and then you say, well, thank God that's over. Now it's back to, uh, to cheeseburgers and sitting on the couch like we've been pretty good at not falling into that mindset so it would seem right i agree with you and you know the one thing that i look at with canada is absolutely there were things that we could improve with our response but look at the stop and smell the roses for a second we're in a very good spot right now we're also in a situation now where we're putting uh, measures in place so you know we don't want to slide back into that situation especially what we're seeing in um you know the u.s and of course in australia as well but you're right i think it's important for us not to get complacent i do think that we've done all the right things and now you know uh we've been able to learn from other countries and it is possible to stay at this low rate of transmission and prevent that explosive stuff from happening so we got into stage three uh in the gta they went a bit earlier like london middlesex and hamilton they were in a week earlier but people were worried they were worried about you know inside dining we were worried about bars people going to clubs uh at distance as it were right now so far there's there hasn't been the spike in numbers that some were anxious about or even some even guaranteed that there would be that's right. And, you know, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we're at about three and a half weeks since the first part of the province went to the stage three. And, uh, you know, the GTHA, as they call it, I think we're now in maybe two and a half weeks. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, the one thing about that 33 number, as awesome as that 33 number was to say, remember, we want to make sure we don't uh, focus on one number, whether it's high or low. Let's look at the overall trend. And even looking at that, the trend has been dropping over the last several weeks, which is very promising. Obviously, we have to keep monitoring. And I do expect at some point we might see some tightening in localized areas of um, health restrictions. But overall, I do think that uh, we're, we're going the right way. I've heard so many people reference a second wave, and I think it's, it's, it'd be valuable for our listeners 
for you to lay out. Do you buy that it's coming no matter what? Isn't a lot of this going to be, if you will, man-made and based on our behaviors? Like, it's not like, oh, we're heading into hurricane season, so there's going to be hurricanes, or it's cold, so there'll be snow. We can prevent a lot of that, and a lot of other nations, uh, developed nations, can prevent a lot of that just by our behavior. Or do you say, nah, the weather's going to get colder, flu season, and and it's, it's concerning what could be there November, December, January? Yes, yeah, so let's put it this way. I don't think that we're necessarily going to see a massive spike if we're looking at it. A second wave can also be just, you know, uh, doubling or tripling of the cases, but we are still able to keep it under control. We know that respiratory viruses love the wintertime, and I think that that's because, you know, we're, it, it, you're exactly right. How we behave, we're inside, we're huddled together. Uh, but that said, I agree there are things that we can do to make it, to, to mitigate it so it's not massive. And we also want to remember, our first wave here in Canada had a lot to do with the fact that Thousands and thousands of travelers came back within a couple of weeks from March break and introduced them. So we're not going to see that type of injection. How how are you with schools? Do you look and go, I'm a lot more confident than I would have been three weeks ago. I'm more confident than the day the province announced the plan. Every parent I talk to um, say they're say they're more worried about elementary schools than high schools, and that's that's just the practicality of of kids being kids and not being as mature and, and not knowing and, and being able to abide by the rules. But has your confidence level grown that that we can handle uh, schools as they're planned and, and, and set forth right now? Absolutely. With what I'm seeing with the responses that, look, if we start to see a spike in cases, we might have to you know, tighten down on things. But especially the one thing to consider, the best way we can protect our kids and protect everybody in every situation is having low-level community spread. And we're there right now. and We've been able to keep it down. Obviously, we have to keep monitoring things. But yes, I'm more confident than I was uh, three weeks ago. And I do think that we can pull this off in a safe way. That's that's actually really reassuring and uh, and great news. Dr. Chakrabarty, I, gr- I loved having you on. Great conversation. I hope we get to do it again. I hope you have a great day as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. You Thank got you. it. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, he's an infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners. There's not too many parallels we can draw from the states uh, as to what they're doing with education. We've seen all the photos. Here's a, you know, here's a school. It's reopening in Georgia. Crowded hallways. Not many masks. Because they're not making mass mandatory in the vast majority of schools in the vast majority of states, right? They're doing it by a district. Again, without mandate, this has never been about enforcement. This has never been about policing. Uh, it's about practicality. And it's about, hey, I care about your health. So can you care about mine as well and, and wear it back? And those of us that started wearing masks in retail environments uh, in the early days, I think my first Time with a mask on, going into a grocery store. I was visiting my parents, and halfway there, I stopped and got groceries, put the mask on. Only Maybe two guys, two people in the place uh, with a mask, but I thought it was significant enough. And then you get that real buzz of adrenaline at first. Um, not that it's every you know young uh, man's fantasy to commit a robbery, um, but it's on your mind. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, then you soon lose those uh, those particular, uh, you know, thoughts and uh, images. But it's interesting to see what's transpired in B.C. And I'm going to juxtapose that with what we've got here in Ontario, because the return to school in the fall has a slight delay to it. And I've heard people in Ontario say that. Are we ready? Are we ready on Labor Day? Can we talk more about this? Can school boards, teachers, can we get in the groove a little bit more um, with the sort of you know, the, you know how you, you log on to a website and you see FAQ, frequently asked questions. 
frequently asked questions. And you got to click on those because you're like, I have an obvious question. It better be in the frequently asked question. Well, teachers still have questions. What if there's an outbreak? What if there's one kid? What if it's a teacher? Does a teacher have to quarantine uh, immediately? Who replaces that teacher? Is it a teacher that's already been in that school or are they coming in from somewhere else? Testing, lunches, all that stuff um, is really, really critical. And we know what our country's like. It's especially critical uh, when the weather shifts and especially critical when the level of outside time ends up getting uh, a lot more limited, per se, um, than it is now. That's a huge problem. Uh, Lindsay Pereja is a teacher at John Fraser Secondary, and she's making her way into Queens Park today for a protest. They're going to document and help people visualize the Ford COVID classroom, as they're calling it. Lindsay's kind enough to take some time uh, to join us now. Lindsay, it's Greg Brady. It's great for you to come on. I appreciate the time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And your school is the, uh, uh, give a shout out, your school is what, the the Jaguar, the Jaguars, the Royal Jaguars? I can't tell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many Jaguars are blue, but yours is, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. It, it looks like it had some paint spilled on it or so. There's some kind of a art room uh, there accident. There won't be very many sports uh, <laughs> activities going on, though. No, there will not. No, no, no one. Yeah, the school colors won't be uh, won't be flying as per usual. No, uh, no coaching tennis in the fall. Listen, your school is pretty big too. I was looking at it. Enrollments around 1,700. You guys would have been expecting, you know, 400 some grade nines rolling in, and and we all know we all been there. Hi- high school is brand new and intimidating and exhilarating all at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. what, what would you, what's your recommendation for the mindset? First of all, for uh, an average student who's coming in at 14, you're going to have conversations with a lot of these students um, and they're not going to feel quite right for a little bit. Are they? Yeah, no. I, and honestly, I have no answers to that. You just mentioned the, the frequently asked questions and that yeah. is one of them. I can't, I, I cannot visualize for a second what school is going to look like. I, you know, so many of us are feeling that anxiety because our jobs are going to be completely different as soon as we set it or step into that school. Um, our, that school is one of the larger ones. And of course, we know that in the suburban areas, we have newer schools. Ours happens to have air conditioning, but I, I don't even know whether or not that equates to proper ventilation as all the experts are suggesting. So I, I really don't know. I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine what 15 kids in one of my classrooms, no problem. And that, of course, is if, in fact, the cap is at 15 kids. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my classrooms, no problem. We have a, a wall of windows. But more than half of the classrooms at my school, this newer school, 20-year-old school, yeah. are internal. And they have no windows. And they are often stuffy and gross on certain days, right? So Mm. if that's the case, how on earth do we have what is needed to keep our kids safe? I I really don't know. Is there a level of confidence? Because I got a kid going into grade nine and one going into grade seven, and and I do have more confidence in the elementary school plan. I can't tell if that's that's just going to be, uh, Lindsay, the teacher-student dynamic, or uh, obviously there's a lot less, you know, students are a lot more independent at that particular age, and they know yeah. how to get from point A to point B, and there's no there's no bathroom issues, there's no getting them dressed to go out for resets, all those things. It, it, would you be less confident, notably less confident, if, if all of a sudden we transplanted you into a grade two classroom? Oh, there's no way. There's no way yeah. to teach elementary in the best of days. <laughs> that is a totally different world, and uh, those people are just incredible and amazing people. But I, 
no, I don't. And I I have two kids of my own, a 10-year-old and a 3-year-old who is supposed to be starting JK this year. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine throwing a 3-year-old into a class of 30 kids? There, like it just uh, that is so unfair to the two educators in that room firstly secondly i i can't imagine being able to trust that he would control himself he would contain himself right and after six months of being with just his family and his older brother teaching him how to go about things uh, no no there's mm-hmm. no way uh, I, and so we're gonna have to keep both of our kids home and that that stresses me out in itself Lindsay Parajas, our guest, she's a teacher at John Fraser Secondary School, uh, a protest at Queen's Park today. What's the what are the main messages um, to the Ford government um, when it comes to to high school specifically? What, what are the big things you'd want to let them know um, that that just don't seem suitable or feasible right now for you and, and your other teachers? For for high school, it has to be a class cap. We have to be able to manage in that way, not only because of the class sizes, or like the classroom sizes we have, but also the unknown of you know doing this hybrid model. If that is in fact what we're going with, because again, I have seen no actual confirmed plans. But uh, it's a lot for teachers to manage trying to go back and forth and and replan our entire semesters to possibly turn into quadmesters. That's a completely different ballgame. But then also, like I said, that ventilation issue, it seems to be underrepresented in all the concerns that mm-hmm. that we're hearing um, out there in the in the media and from, from public health officials. I need to know a checklist. I need to know what to look for in my classroom to know whether or not the ventilation is safe enough. And I have no idea. I don't know what to look for. If it, I, I, I know that we had a um, God, I spoke to a um, an administrator, superintendent, and he's got parents calling him saying, can you guarantee me um, that there won't be any cases at your school? And no one can. No one can do yeah. that. Um, and this isn't about really uh, there's no 100 percent safe, but there's also no 100 percent unsafe. This is just about risk mitigation. Now we're all living these lives right now. If there is a case at your school or when there inevitably is a case at your school, do you as teachers, do, does your principal, your vice principal know the protocol? What happens from that point on? I brought up sub teachers early on. What happens to that class? Who takes it over the next day or the next day that that, that, that cohort yeah. is in is in the school? Yeah, we know and we know nothing. And with only a couple weeks to go, it's very unsettling to know nothing about that kind of a plan. I, I don't even know who's taking the temperatures of the students before they come into the schools. That can't be us. No. Not the education staff. I, I, I can't imagine. I, again, when I think about my own kids and double checking and triple checking anytime I suspect that they have a, a fever, I don't trust myself to be checking the, the temperature of a bunch of teenagers. That cannot possibly be my responsibility. Well, I, elementary schools I know have, uh, the, and this is a struggle as well, is going from school to school. This was the, the nightmare scenario um, that we had with LTCs in our province. I, I think yeah. there's a lot of parents concerned that with not a full-time nurse at a school, if they're rotating going, well, I'll go to this school, there's a problem. The next right. day I'll be at this school. That's right. sort of not the, that, that's not how we've been guiding our own principles and lives in the last right. five months. So it's contradiction. Yeah. It's a contradiction to everything we've been doing to keep the numbers low. Exactly. Exactly. And and I know that, that we're on a good trajectory right now. Mm-hmm. Our numbers are lower, but that is all going to blow up as soon as we're 
we're fully open again and and i don't know it's it's stressful i i i appreciate that bc has pushed their start date and i wish that that was a consideration here too just because well again i i think clearly there's a need for more time to plan uh because they don't have a plan uh but also uh, when we shut down was not the indication that we had to wait until there were zero cases for x number of weeks and and we're not there yet so why aren't we waiting until we're at that point and you guys need the time that's the, that was sort of where i was going to is have they told you as a school these are the days we need you in the school we're going to talk about this yeah. together we'll distance we, yeah. we to be because they have to train you they have to train yeah. you on these protocols and they haven't done that yet no nothing Nothing. And not only that, we have a few PD days before the beginning of school, before Labor Day. Mm. And it sounds like there's a good possibility that those PD days, the the staff training will all be online, (laughs) which is just laughable in itself, but also very stressful because I think about my classroom and that's typically the time that we go in and set up a classroom if we want to do something creative, right? Let alone have to go in and make sure that they're all six feet apart. Assuming that that's our responsibility, too. But again, I don't even know. I don't know. Lindsay, uh, good luck today. Uh, it's it's important to get the word out. It's important to get the, uh, some attention for these issues, not just for you as teachers. And, and we all appreciate what you do. But for parents, you're a parent also. And so many teachers are parents. And it's just it's cr- these next few weeks are kind of critical uh, to make sure we're all we're all in a better frame of mind. And we just know more by the time Labor Day comes around. Thank you so much for the time today. Call, call your MPPs, please. Yeah. <laughs> good. Them know. Good plea. Lindsay, thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lindsay Pareja uh, teaches at John Fraser Secondary School in um, Mississauga. Yeah, the uh, the struggle is 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 going to be considerable just in terms of nailing things down. What your kid you got a kid in class. He puts up his hand, says, can I go to the bathroom? What do you do? You, 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 you're letting them go to the bathroom, but what are the steps along the way? Does somebody have to walk them down to the bathroom? So what are all these protocols? Uh, what about when kids get out of class and you're right into the hallway? What about, what about classes where you share supplies? Um, I, I know there's kids that signed up for music, signed up for drama, signed up for what cl- like teachers need to know this stuff. And you're hearing right there from an actual teacher. She's not sure yet. And it's not like she's missing the memos. OK, she's not not checking her email. Every teacher is hyper conscious of all these things. And the, and the parents want to be able to ask teachers questions. If you if you're a parent that's a non teacher and you know a teacher, you're asking them everything you can right now and them not having answers isn't terribly reassuring. Look, the government would have got slammed hard if they'd put a plan together in June and just said, here's our plan. So I don't think this is about timing. I think this is utilizing the time that's left in the next three weeks, three and a half weeks, uh, to make sure everybody knows the answer to every single question, okay? You've got to have contingency. You have to have a contingency plan. Every business has a contingency plan. What if our guy, what, what if our VP gets hit by a bus? You'll know exactly what you're doing the next day and schools look a little the boards and the teachers and the province directive working with the boards feels a little lacking right now. It feels a little slow. It's not where it was seven months ago where there's a lot of tension and they're trying to get a deal done. We've got all these rotating strike days, but I don't want to say this is a little more important than uh, than a labor dispute, but your kids health, your parents health, your grandparents health, your own health. 
You can make the case it is. Yesterday was a historic day in America. There's no question about it. And people breathe a sigh of relief. A lot of people think Joe Biden got this right. But the other side, and there is another side, we already know that's true, um, is is not going to, you know, they're not going to wait. They're not going to wait to smear. They're not going to wait to character assassinate. Uh, There's no honeymoon period when you get named vice president. Mark Levin uh, is... um, a person, and uh, he talked about his show last night and and went in right away uh, on Kamala Harris's ethnicity. I want you to hear a minute, only because it's not an endorsement, but it's a notation that this is going to be convincing to some and obviously patently offensive and wrong to others. Kamala Harris is not an African-American. She is Indian and Jamaican. Jamaica is part of the Caribbean. India is out there near China. I only point that out uh, because um, uh, if you dare raise that, you're attacked. But the truth is she's not. And so I just wanted to make that clear. Her ancestry does not go back to American slavery. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, her ancestry doesn't go back to slavery at all. So I I want to point that out because um, of, of the bizarre nature of our politics today about who is what and so forth and so on. Normally I wouldn't care. I still don't care. Uh, But I keep hearing people say she would be the first African-American vice president. No, if she's even elected, God forbid, or nominated, then elected, she's still not the first African-American vice president. Just want to point that out. She'd be the first vice president of color, but not African-American. Amazing, huh? Like the best part is going Tommy Lee Jones and the fugitive that he doesn't care. But then he talks for 78 seconds about how much he cares. So you're going to see this level of gaslighting. You're going to see this from guys like that. You're going to hear this from Ben Shapiro. You're going to hear this from, you know, the Mark Steins. You might even hear it in Canada with a few commentators. Um, be aware of it. Again, it's there's not going to be much of a honeymoon period uh, either way. Aaron Rupar is a fantastic writer, uh, associated as well at uh, Vox.com, uh, and I wanted to bring him on to get his reaction to yesterday. Aaron, big fan of your work. Thank you very much for making the time to do this. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate coming on. What, what do you make of those comments? Like I said, it's um, you know this isn't going to be um, you know this isn't going to be the genteel uh, presidential uh, elections of the past, where you know even George Herbert Walker Bush is going to write Bill Clinton a nice note when he leaves the White House, uh, and and I'm behind you and best of luck. And we're seeing this already yesterday with some of the comments from the other side, if you will, about Kamala Harris and going right to the ethnicity card. Yeah, I'm really not surprised by what Mark Levin said. Um, First of all, I'm not really sure who he's trying to refute. Um, I didn't see anybody out there saying anything about Kamala Harris being, you know, African-American. So it seems like a bit of a a straw man, but it's not really significant, even if you take his argument on the merits. I mean, obviously, he has a large audience. uh, First, you know, most prominently, the president being a huge fan (laughs) of his work. But, um, you know, I just don't know what kind of salience that has more broadly across the electorate. So, you know, I'm not surprised that that Fox News wasted no time going there. But um, I think that would have been the case no matter who Biden selected, uh, especially since we knew heading into yesterday that he had pretty much narrowed it down to women of color. Uh, So, you know, I kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, I think that in terms of the substance of her record um, and in terms of making attacks that are more based on the merits, uh, I think you see Republicans kind of flailing in that respect. And, you know, I think that reflects that Mm. Harris had been thoroughly vetted, obviously, as a presidential candidate and as someone who had served in the Senate and had a long career in public service. 
And I think that was part of the appeal of Biden in selecting her is that she's well known. Um, there are no big surprises in her background. And so in that respect, it's kind of a conservative choice. Um, but Biden had that luxury to make a conservative choice because he saw Lee ahead in the polls here. So, um, you know, I'm not really surprised, like I said, that Mark Levin mm-hmm. that went there. But I just I don't know how much salience that has. Uh, in terms of the voters who are actually going to decide this election. Aaron Rupar from Vox.com, our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I I know there'd be people out there saying, well, you know, and Stephen Colbert made a great joke. Really, whose vote is this going to change? But it does need to engage a base. And uh, obviously, uh, blacks and Hispanics didn't come to the polls in 2016. And they weren't going to maybe come in the exact numbers they did to come out and support the Obama-Biden ticket two elections in a row, but it, it cost Hillary and cost Hillary dearly. And when she chose Tim Kaine as, as the VP, uh, the needle just didn't move. Nobody talked about it. Yeah. Nobody found Kaine uh, I- interesting, engaging, or even polarizing. That, that They went the other way here, here with Kamala Harris. Yeah, it, you know, I think one thing that needs to be pointed out is that there is a little bit of a risk in this pick, just in that Harris during the primary, you know, when she was running for president, there, there really isn't a ton of evidence that black people turned out to vote for her. Uh, you know, they turned out more to vote to vote for Joe Biden. Um, so, you know, the assumption that Harris is really going to lock down the black vote for Biden, you know, I'm not really sure there's a lot of evidence backing that up, but certainly she's very competent, um, you know, very skilled in terms of, you know, when we've, when we've seen her during hearings of uh, most notably the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. I yeah. mean, her grilling of Kavanaugh really stood out. And, um, you know, that'll be an asset, obviously, when it comes to debating Mike Pence in October. And, you know, she really will be able to kind of fit in nicely as the heir apparent, um, if that's how things turn out in terms of being, you know, I think like 25 years younger than Biden, uh, obviously someone who's already run for president. And for, you know, a minute there was the front runner. Um, and I think it also... From Biden's standpoint, kind of uh, reflects positively upon him that despite the fact that Harris catapulted to the top of the polls based on attacking Biden's Biden's record on race relations, that, you know, he was still gracious enough to pick her as his running mate and didn't sort of hold a grudge or, you know, view that situation with bitterness. Um, so, you know, in terms of the she doesn't really have a constituency in, a, in, in the manner that I think a lot of people are assuming that she does. But she kind of checks a lot of the boxes that you want in a vice presidential pick for someone who is, you know, would be the oldest president ever elected, um, you know, in terms of of Joe Biden. So, um, you know, I think I I would hesitate a little bit before assuming that, you know, it'll it'll make a huge difference in terms of the electorate. But, um, you know, like I said, I think it's a conservative pick, but I think it's a smart pick. And I, I, there's two things, too, that, that I thought about while you were laying that out, and, and that it's I don't know that we've ever had a, uh, a party or one side of the political fence want a president out so much after one term. We can think that was the case with, you know, you can name Jimmy Carter in, uh, in 1980. We can think that was the case um, when uh, when the Iraq war is raging and, and Democrats want John Kerry and, and not another year of, of or not another four years of W. But nothing like this. And we also don't have that kind of scenario, Aaron, where we don't we don't think it's it's feasible or maybe even recommended that this presidential candidate serve a second term. He'll turn 78 on November 20th. And Harris, we know she wants to be president and we know she's got the ambition to be president. And it's a good fit for that reason alone. 
Yeah, I agree with you there. And, you know, it's interesting going on a Canadian show because I'll tell you, um, right now I'm actually in Minnesota, so not not that far away from Canada. I love Minnesota. I love Minneapolis, one of my favorite cities on the planet, man. That's great. Yeah, this is where I grew up. So we're, we're visiting family here. But part of the reason we're doing that is because we're kind of riding out the pandemic, uh, which obviously has made a lot of cities here, you know, borderline unlivable. And obviously the situation is nowhere near as severe as, as it, you know, Canada has nowhere near that uh, severity of a situation. So I look upon Ontario with envy in terms of, uh, you know, being able to resume civilization to a level that we're not able to here. And that kind of plays into what you were saying, where the stakes here are just so high. Um, you know, we basically ended society as we knew it because of this pandemic and the fact that federally we just can't get this thing under control. So I think that's ultimately the issue that this election is going to come down to. And, you know, if you caught President Trump last night on Sean Hannity's show, you know, he's basically at this point just ignoring the fact that the pandemic even exists. I mean, it barely came up during the course of an interview that spanned 40 minutes. And, you know, I just think in terms of the experiences that people are having right now in their lives, that that's not really a viable approach because, you know, it's kind of dominating mm-hmm. every facet of life, professionally, personally. You know, a lot of people have dealt with loss in terms of the more than 160,000 deaths we've had here. So, you know, Trump seems to just want to ignore the whole situation. And I think, you know, you, you, like you were talking about in the lead-in with these conferences now delaying football until the spring. I mean, I think people are kind of on hold until we get some sort of federal plan to get the situation under control here. And so the stakes are very, very high. And I think that it's going to be tough for Trump um, in the sense that no one's life right now is really better than it was four years ago. And that's ultimately what a lot of these presidential elections in the states come down to. And he has a really tough argument in that regard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Aaron Rupar, by the way, associate editor of politics and policy with uh, Vox.com. I, I, and I look at where, yeah, I, I look at where this is going to go and, and whether we're going to redefine what a, what a swing state is. But I, I look and I think there's so many voters that, like I said, felt the need to stay home, felt the urge. They, were, they voted third party or they just, I talked to a lot of people. Um, my uncle and aunt live in Ohio and that's the ultimate swing state, right? And they would lean more likely Republican. They, they loathed Trump four years ago. But they didn't feel, and I, I don't know how they voted, but three weeks before I visited them and they, they said, I can't walk in there and vote for Hillary Clinton. And that was a lot of that was a lot of Midwest America. That was a lot of people in a lot of important states, and they won't feel that way this time around. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, for three years we were able to kind of skate by in that there wasn't really an existential crisis. You know, there was no foreign policy crisis that led into a war. We didn't obviously have a pandemic or anything along those lines. And now we're seeing the price of having someone in that office that isn't really up to the task in kind of very basic ways mm-hmm. of, you know, marshalling a federal response to a crisis that isn't a state level crisis. And that's kind of the big flaw with Trump's pandemic response has been he's basically delegating all of this to the states. But the coronavirus doesn't really respect state borders, you know, and, and it's obviously by its very nature, the sort of thing that requires a federal response. So. I think a lot of voters in 2016 kind of had that mentality that you were alluding to of, you know, geez, I'm not sure Hillary Clinton is really um, suited for this or she's corrupt. You know, Um, what was she doing using private email for, you know, her public work, that sort of thing. I mean, things that seem very small in hindsight. But um, I think the Trump years have really Mm -hmm. illustrated, you know, the importance of having competence and someone who has interests beyond their own self-interest in mind when making policy. And so. I think that'll motivate a lot of voters this time around. But um, and, and for that reason, I think the Harris pick was a smart one, because when Susan Rice 
you know, kind of emerged as a finalist, I was really worried that if she was picked, she'd get painted with the brush of Benghazi and a lot of the Hillary Clinton scandals, uh, since she was so involved, you know, in Obama's administration as a national security advisor. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that that would prevent that would provide an opportunity for Trump to kind of reopen some of those wounds and, and relitigate some of those issues. And I think Harris doesn't provide the same opportunity in that respect. Um, but hopefully this time around, people will vote based on more important issues than, you know, email servers and things like that. You, you wrote a great piece on Vox yesterday uh, that I got in touch with you about about the mail voting sabotage. And I, I found some of the data really fascinating in there about who planned to vote by mail, how many are going to vote in person via the by candidate, by state. Um, but is it becoming more and more of an issue? Is it getting talked about not enough, enough or 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 more than enough? Is it is it an issue that's uh, been exaggerated in terms of people's concern about the result? Well, it's a really big issue. You know, it's kind of complex because there's really no evidence um, that mail voting leads to fraud. Uh, the only instance that, you know, people can kind of point to happened in 2018 an election in North Carolina for a congressional seat, and actually the fraud was carried out on behalf of a Republican candidate, and ultimately was discovered, and they had to run, and you know they had a new election there in early 2019. Um, so there's not a whole lot of evidence of fraud, but Trump views this as an, existent- an existential threat to his presidency because, as you alluded to, polling has showed that like 75% of people who are planning to cast their ballot by mail, plan to vote for Joe Biden. And obviously the stakes are different this time around, given the pandemic, where, you know, I'm sure people in Canada have seen the images of when Americans are lining up to vote at some of these polling places in urban centers, and there's long lines, and it's crowded, things that are really dangerous in the context of a pandemic. So there's more demand this year than ever before for mail voting. And, you know, Trump has been raising, you know, sounding the alarm about possible fraud, but he really doesn't have any evidence to back that up. But the thing is that he's trying to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy by dismantling the postal service here, which obviously is tasked with picking up the ballots, delivering them in a timely manner to the polling places, and kind of all of the logistics of mail voting. So the worry is that as Trump cuts overtime pay for carriers, as he implements new policies, that slow down the delivery of mail, that this could lead to a situation where on election night, it could look very close or Trump could even be slightly ahead because at that time, a lot of the mail ballots will not have been tallied. And we could be looking at a situation where he declares victory, you know, mm-hmm. cites irregularities with the mail voting and tries to, you know, kind of steal the election in that manner. So there's a lot of projection going on when Trump talks about the fraud involved in mail voting, because He's really the one that's putting, you know, mail voting in a position where it could be fraudulent or there could be problems. But um, unfortunately, you know, outside of states passing laws to change the way that these votes are tallied, to allow them to be tallied ahead of Election Day, which in a lot of states they can't do right now, um, we are looking at a situation on election night where, you know, that's kind of the nightmare scenario where Trump could have an opportunity to prematurely declare victory. It's on people's minds, that's for sure. Uh, check them out, Vox.com, Aaron Rupar. Thank you very much for making the time. Hope you keep enjoying Minnesota. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's it for the podcast today. Don't forget to catch the Kelly Cotrera Show live every weekday starting here at 9 a.m. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and the other global news radio podcasts wherever you find your favorite podcasts.